Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show. It is Tuesday, February 11th. Thanks so much for tuning in here today. If you have something you want to hear more about or just have some burning questions you want answered or if you just want to say hi, don't hesitate to contact me by email at jandreas at stingray.com or hit me up on Twitter at Jeffrey underscore Andreas, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y underscore A-N-D-R-E-A-S. I have a good show lined up here today. Coming up, I have uh, Kathleen Karpuk, the chair of SD73, coming on after last night's school board meeting. Among the topics for discussion was the Kamloops Center for the Arts, we are now 53 days away from the April 4th referendum. The school board is in support of the project as it will open up theater space in the community for students to use and for schools, of course, to put on performances. And it will also make a dif- difference when it comes to space for graduation ceremonies. So. Kathleen will join me here in just a short while to talk about that. Uh, we'll also discuss some numeracy, uh, you know, uh, stats that are happening there. And we'll also maybe even look ahead to the beginning of budget planning for the upcoming school year. At around the 35-minute mark of the show, I'm going to be joined by the mayor of Port McNeil. The small community of about 2,400 people on Vancouver Island is in the midst of an eight-month strike by forest industry workers. Well... Yesterday, it was announced that a tentative deal had been reached between workers and their employer, and that news is being greeted with cautious optimism. Mayor Gabby Wickstrom says many businesses and people living in the community were stretched to the limit financially, and an end to the dispute would be widely welcomed. This has shown us that we are forestry dependent and that we need to uh, we need to diversify our economy. It's been really hard for us. B- businesses have lost, you know, 40, 50 percent of um, their in- income and people just weren't shopping they weren't doing anything and um, this month really in my opinion was the do or die month I got phone calls from fathers in the interior saying that they're helping their families out here and they have nothing more to give and their families were ready to lose everything so I think for, for a lot of people this was a critical month and I know for businesses it was a critical month as well I'm not sure how much longer people could have continued before there would have been major loss yeah, I think you can hear some of the concern that uh, has come along with the fact that people have been off work for such an extended period of time. So about 3,000 employees and contractors at Western Forest Products facilities in several Vancouver Island communities, including there in Port McNeil, have been off the job since about July 1st. So uh, as mentioned in that clip, Wickstrom said the strike is evidence that B.C.'s coastal economy needs to diversify, saying that moving forward we're going to look at being less resource-dependent and more resource-based. And she adds that there is some fence-mending to be done as the strike Invited a lot of people in the community. She said contractors, union contractors against Western Forest Products, you know, all these people are going to have to work together. So there are some relationships that will need to be repaired moving forward. So, I mean, of course, Wickstrom was saying that, um, you know, in, as, as a coastal community, they need to be re- less resource dependent and more resource based. And I think that's uh, the case, not just for the coast, but that's kind of the case for um, communities across real, not just BC, but really Canada to become less dependent on one single source of uh, employment. So if you think we've had some difficulty here when it comes to that forestry sector uh, in the interior well of course you would be right but uh, looking at this situation here on Vancouver Island there are some people that are um, you know maybe even more dependent on that single sector than we are here in Kamloops and it just goes to show the need to make sure we have an economy that is diverse and is not reliant like I said on any one particular industry.
So, Gabby Wickstrom will be joining me at around the 35-minute mark to talk about the fact that that tentative deal has been reached and hopefully we are seeing an end to that strike for her community. To end off today's show, I'm going to be joined by Norm Daly. He is the chair of the Blazers Memorial Cup Anniversary Celebrations. Kamloops City Council will be hearing from Norm today as the team and city get set to celebrate the anniversary of the last Memorial Cup championship by this team. So 2020 here marks the 25th anniversary of the Kamloops Blazers' last Memorial Cup title in 1995. That year, of course, was their third Memorial Cup championship in a span of four years. The Blazers have won the most Memorial Cups of any WHL team and now plan to celebrate with the community. So next week on February 21st and 22nd, they're celebrating WHL championships, like I said, from 84, 86, 90, 92, 94, and 95, and then those Memorial Cup titles in 92, 94, and 95. Blazer alumni management will all be in Kamloops to remember and share stories about those years. Uh, and so Norm Daly is going to be coming on with me at around the 50-minute mark of today's show to talk more about what is planned for that time uh, what people who attend those celebrations can expect and just how much fun, of course, it is going to be. So stay tuned for that conversation here to end off today's show. Now, um, a lot to get through in the next hour here, but I thought before I would get into it, there is a one story that I just wanted to share, a little bit of funny news here, you know. Um, there's a saying out there that a lot of people say, if it's too loud, you're too old. Well, maybe that isn't entirely true. An 82-year-old man in England who can't hear very well has been blasting his classical music for years, and his neighbors recently had enough of it and got a court order to force him to play it quieter. Then when he didn't, he was arrested, and he has now been sentenced to 24 weeks in jail. An 82-year-old man, 24 weeks in jail. Uh, that's as a result of breaching a condition of a restraining order. So this elderly man was given a restraining order in December, which prohibited him from playing between the hours of 9 a.m. and 10 p.m. any audio at a volume above normal talking level, which was considered to be above 65 decibels. Um, now, this wasn't the first time, like I mentioned, police visited Ian Trainer for a similar complaint. As just in, in December, a police officer attended his home after being called out for this noise complaint. But when a police officer arrested him on suspicion of breaching that condition of uh, restraining order, Trainer simply told the officer that he likes playing his music at a level that he can enjoy. Now, I don't know if I would be uh, totally cool with my neighbors blasting, you know, like Beethoven's Fifth through the walls of my apartment. But, hey, I mean, he's 82 years old. He loves his classical tunes, and he is going to play them at whatever volume he feels is right, even if it is going to cost him 24 weeks in jail. So, you know that saying, like I mentioned, if it's too loud, you're too old? Well, maybe that's, uh, that's just not actually the case. Well, on that happy note, let's take a quick little break here. we got more Jeff Andrea show coming up after the break. I'm going to be joined here in the studio by the chair of SD73, Kathleen Carpuck, to go over what happened yesterday at the uh, Kamloops-Thompson School Board meeting. So stay tuned. More show coming up after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back in here on Tuesday, February 11th. Thanks so much for joining me here this morning. Uh, yesterday, of course, was a school board meeting day for the Kamloops-Thompson School Board, and there were a number of items to be discussed, and I'm joined now in studio by the chair of the board, Kathleen Carpot. Kathleen, thank you so much for coming in. 
Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start with uh, one item that was on the agenda, the Kamloops Centre for the Arts. Um, you know, this is obviously a project that's gotten a lot of attention here over the last little while, um, and it was on your agenda yesterday. So just uh, what is the school board's stance on this project uh, as it stands right now? I know they have expressed some support for it. So just sort of what, what, is, uh, what is it about the Arts Centre project that the school board um, is, is looking forward to? So, um, as people may know, the school board owns Sagebrush Theatre. And we had a challenge with it this past year when we had a cracked roof truss that uh, required us to shut the theatre down. And that impacted a lot of groups. And what people may not know is that the school district uses that theatre a lot. We have 100 days booked to use that theatre out of 365 days. So that takes that time away from uh, theater groups, it takes it away from musical acts, but we'd actually like to be able to get more days in the, in the Sagebrush Theater so that we can have more opportunities for our students to be exposed to the arts. And we'd like them to be exposed to a greater variety of arts. And so that's where uh, our support for the Performing Arts Centre comes in, is it would allow us to have more time in the theatre and for our students to be able to use it. It would give them more exposure to a greater variety of arts, uh, theatre productions, music productions. It's a possible venue for graduations. Right now we're doing grad in a hockey arena, which is not always the best venue for things. So we know uh, education that when students are exposed to a robust arts experience that they do better in school and so that's part of the reason that we uh, last night voted to support the Performing Arts Centre. So you're using it right now about a hundred days a year um, I don't know if you could put a, a, a number on it but just how much more often do you have any idea how much more often the schools and, and school groups will be wanting to use a theatre? I mean a hundred doesn't sound like really that many days when you think about how many schools there are in the district, right? Uh, Jenny, any idea just how much more use that, that facility could get if, you know, places like the Western Canada Theatre and, and those kinds of groups were, you know, had somewhere else to perform? Uh, well, to give you an idea, um, school's in session for approximately 184 days of the year. And so if we were able to use that theatre even, you know, a few days more, then we would we'd probably be in there almost every day of the week if we could, because it is attached to schools. It's right next to the um, Kamloops School of the Arts. There's other schools in the area that would like to be able to use it for theater programs. Um, it's a fantastic resource. But because we are in that facility, it does block other groups from the outside for being able to uh, book in. So if, for instance, a music act is coming through town and they would like to have a break between Vancouver and Calgary, Kamloops is a logical spot, but if the theater's already booked, they can't get in, they don't stop, they go somewhere else. Yeah, um, and, and I mean, you kind of just touched on it there a little bit, but just how significant would having a, a Kamloops Center for the Arts to bring in just, you know, more educational opportunities for students, like, I mean, just, can you even speak to, like, how significant that could potentially be? You can't really put, like, numbers or words to it necessarily, but, um, you know, just the ability to see more exhibits, to see more um, shows and plays and, and musical events, I mean, uh, you know, that's something that I remember in school doing quite a bit and it obviously had a, had an impact um, so and just the chance to have more of those coming through town would probably be a pretty significant thing for students 
it would be an incredible benefit to students um, just to increase the variety of uh, the groups coming through town uh, increase the number of opportunities for students and the community uh, we see it as a benefit a benefit to the entire community not just our students awesome um, and of course like I had mentioned off the top the referendum is April 4th which is now 53 days away so it's coming up pretty quick. Uh, another thing that was on the agenda was uh, numeracy, and you had a presentation from your numeracy coordinator. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what uh, was discussed in that presentation? So Amanda Russett is our numeracy coordinator, or one of our numeracy coordinators in the district. And numeracy is something that's receiving a, a larger focus for us because we do have um, struggles with that with our students. Um, it's not something that's uh, limited to our district. It's a provincial-wide challenge. And numeracy is not math. Numeracy is figuring out how to find a solution to a problem. So we're talking about things like how do you make change? If you need to make $1.25 and change, what coins are you going to use? Which coins are you going to use if you don't have any quarters? Uh, those types of challenges. How do you figure out uh, if you're going to buy a car or if you're going to lease a car? What's your advantage? Which, which cell phone plan do you want to use? Those are numeracy challenges. And that's what we're working on, trying to improve how we teach it and uh, getting sure, making sure that uh, students have a solid grounding in that. Yeah, there's <coughs> excuse me, definitely some things in there that I wish I uh, was taught in school. So it's good to see that steps are being taken to make sure kids are, are equipped with those skills that uh, you really do need in adulthood. Um, so what is being done to get better at teaching numeracy? Can I know, I know the coordinator spoke a little bit to it. Can you tell me sort of uh, what the plan is to improve that process? So what we've done over the past few years is uh, increase the amount of resources that are available to teachers. Um, increase the number of experts in the district that teachers are able to resource as uh, mentors. Um, we have sessions where teachers are able to attend and learn a little bit more about how to teach numeracy. Uh, numeracy isn't just limited to the math classroom. You see numeracy in social studies, you see numeracy in science, and so trying to expose um, those concepts to a wide range of teachers and then provide them with the classroom resources that they need so that they can go back to the classroom after a session and put what they've learned right into action. Right on. Uh, yeah, definitely sounds like something that um, is important for, for kids to learn and, and it's obviously important to be able to be good at teaching it if they're actually going to be able to learn and retain anything. Um, and I also saw on the budget, or sorry, on the uh, the board agenda yesterday, um, just sort of looking ahead to next school year a little bit, starting to, to think about what's going to be done when it comes to the budget process. Uh, about six weeks out from what I saw about when those budget discussions are going to sort of begin, March 30th being the first meeting to look at, you know, how finances are going to be used in that 2020-2021 school year. Um, I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on sort of the process as it stands, because I, I assume that uh, this is an opportunity now for maybe people or, or groups who um, are, are planning some projects or are looking at some things that they might want done at schools. This would probably be the time to come forward and, and at least, um, you know, have that dialogue about considering some of those things that they may want to see included in a budget. 
So the way that our budget process works is um, staff have been producing reports for us over the past few months. Uh, we have our achievement reports, we have our equity reports, our facility reports, and the board is going to be meeting uh, on February 24th to basically go through all the different reports that we've been receiving from staff over the past few months and identify the largest priorities that we're seeing. So those are things where we know that we've been putting in a lot of portables lately. That increases uh, maintenance challenges. It takes a lot of time away from preventative maintenance that we would be doing over the summer because staff are busy installing portables. That's a challenge. We know uh, numeracy has been identified through our achievement reports as an area where we'd like to see some more progress. Uh, children in care. That's a segment of our student group where we know that we see some challenges. Completion rates for those kids are not where we'd like to see them. So that's something that we may decide that we need to put some more resources and focuses on. So we'll go through all of those reports that staff have been presenting us for the past few weeks. And we'll come up with some broad priorities that the board feels are necessary. And we'll send that to staff. And then staff are going to figure out the how we're going to do it part. And then um, they will bring that back to the board. That will actually happen on, I believe it's April 6th. The board will see the budget for the first time. And then on April 9th, it will be presented to our employee groups, to parents, to media, the public, for a chance for them to weigh in and see if we got our priorities right, if there's something else that we need to be considering. And then later on, it will come back to the board for a final decision. Okay, so April 9th is sort of that date where people will see it and have a chance to, to have their two cents on what is currently in there. Um, how, how long is that process? Do you have any idea between um, uh, you know when when public have the chance to have their say and, and then when things are going to be finalized? Or do you know how long that uh, that window of opportunity is for people? Um, you know, because I think it's important for people to know just how much time they have to kind of go through the document and be able to, to come up with suggestions or, or, you know, just concerns, whatever they may have when it comes to that process. So the um, budget will be presented in public on the 9th of April, and uh, then the deadline for submissions to the budget would be April 23rd. Okay, so they have a, a couple of weeks to get their, get their comments and suggestions in, so I, that should be a good enough time. You would hope 14 days is is quite a bit of time to, to read through a document and provide some input. So, perfect. Uh, anything else you want to add, Kathleen, while I have you in here? Uh, just that uh, we are, again, as part of uh, going through our budget, uh, looking at our facilities. Uh, we are going to be taking, uh, you know, why, what, what do we have to consider? Uh, we know that uh, we've had increases in student population over the past uh, year. Uh, we had an additional 285 students this this year, uh, that's equivalent to uh, an elementary school worth of new students, mm -hmm. and that increase goes to uh, students in portables, unfortunately. And we have to start doing some long-range planning that if we are going to continue to be in a growth pattern, then we will continue to have to purchase portables and we need to have a long-term strategy around that. We don't want to have portable schools. Uh, in our district, so we need to uh, find a way to convince the government that we need to have some more schools in Kamloops so that we can have uh, students in proper classrooms. Right on. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Kathleen. Always appreciate you coming in, and uh, yeah, hopefully um, we provided some input for people or some uh, knowledge for people to 
take home with them and, and then come back with that budget process and then provide their input. So thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Right on. That was the chair of SD73, Kathleen Carpock. Coming up next, the small Vancouver Island community has been hit hard by a near eight-month strike by forestry workers. I'll be joined by the mayor of Port McNeil next. to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Tuesday the 11th. A tentative agreement in a forest industry strike that kept some 3,000 workers off the job since last July is being greeted with some cautious optimism by a Vancouver Island mayor who says the dispute put some families and businesses on the brink of bankruptcy. The deal was announced yesterday as the strike nears eight months. The mayor of Port McNeil had said that the strike by workers represented by the United Steelworkers at Western Forest Products has been financially devastating to mill workers and businesses that rely lie on them. I'm joined now on the line by Port McNeil Mayor Gabby Wickstrom. Gabby, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jeff. So, yeah, just talk a little bit about this cautious optimism that you're feeling right now. I mean, it's been eight months or almost eight months now uh, since the strike began, and it looks like a tentative deal is now in place. Of course, it still has to be ratified, but just how are you feeling? A, a bit of a sigh of a relief right now for you? For sure. It was great news to wake up to the other day to hear that they'd reached a tentative agreement. But with seven and a half months um, of striking, nothing really has gone the way anybody had anticipated. So that's why I say ca cautiously optimistic, because, you know, until it's ratified, we're, we're still holding our breath. For sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about just what kind of impact this has had on the community? I know I, I touched on it there briefly, but, um, you know, just to get a real sense from you of, of kind of how significant this has been for Port McNeil. I mean, um, you know, your community is, what, 2,400 people, and, and this is a significant portion of the workforce that work in this industry. Um, you know, clearly, clearly a significant impact on not only workers and their families, but those who rely on them to, to um, you know, buy stuff and, and support the economy. Yeah, it's, it's important for your listeners to understand that it was 3,000 striking WFP workers, but 6,000 contractors were also caught in the bite. And as the months progressed, it slowly worked to other businesses as well. So those that weren't union members and, and are getting minimum wage, they, I think, were the hardest hit. And for us, you know, we had business. We had businesses who laid off all their employees. The owner and one other employee is working. She just spoke to me the other day and had said she hadn't paid herself in three months. They're not serving food in the restaurant. They're only serving refreshments because the propane is so expensive and food costs. If it's wasted, nobody's coming in to eat. Those kinds of things. I, I got a, a call from a gentleman in Salmon Arm, and he said he was helping his son here on the island, and he has run out of money to help him. And he said this month was the month that he would probably be losing things. So it was really imperative that they get back to work, which was why I, I worked so hard to put pressure on both sides to get back to the table. What, what kind of impact has it had just for, for you as a municipal uh, leader there in the community? I mean, you've obviously been hearing from a lot of people who are worried about their futures and, and what this has meant. But, you know, when it comes time to, to trying to, you know, plan a budget or uh, look at what can happen with your tax base, I mean, how difficult is it to, to do that work uh, when you're looking at a large portion of your tax base unable to have any income? 
That's a good question. Uh, we are going through our budget process right now, and, and we'll be setting our tax rates, and we'll be keeping in mind the fact that people haven't had an income or little income in the last seven and a half months. So we still have to de debate and discuss that as a council. May have to look at deferment of taxes as well, because uh, people will take it will take a few months for them to get back on their feet again and, and catch up from all of the debt that they've accumulated. So what uh, what do you think uh, should be learned from this whole experience? I know we're, we're still going through the process, still got to have this thing ratified, and hopefully that happens and that'll you know smooth things out a little bit moving forward. But what have you learned from this experience just in terms of you know maybe having a, a big reliance on one particular industry or one particular uh, union and, and the spinoff jobs that come with that? I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, I, I heard some comments from you yesterday saying there is this, this is a real demonstration to, to display just how important it is to get some diversification within your economy. Absolutely. Uh, we did learn that we're resilient and that we care for each other. We, we That was brought to the forefront again, and that is the positive. The other thing we learned is that we are forestry dependent, and I like to, to move towards being forestry-based. We need to diversify. We're doing our official community plan soon, and, and that will be a, a strong um, area in which we will look at to see what other industries uh, we can attract to our region. We also have the old growth strategic review that's looming, and that is, you know, BC is in a forestry, a BC-wide forestry crisis. It's not just the coast and it's not just the interior. And with the old growth strategic review, it can mean some repercussions for both of us. And, and this strike made us realize what it could look like if some, you know, if there was a ban on old growth logging and, and that kind of a thing. So we need to be balanced with the environment and also look at the socioeconomic factors that come to play as well. Uh, have you had any conversations with other municipal leaders just, uh, you know, around this kind of topic about what can be done to make sure that uh, B.C. communities are not reliant on the forestry sector as, uh, you know, just as a sole industry? Um, I know, like, we've talked about it here in the interior as well, as we've been dealing with some issues when it comes to the forestry sector and the downturn that we're seeing there. And, um, you know, it really does speak to the need to, to diversify. Um, you know, have you just been having, you know, conversations with your municipal colleagues throughout the province to, to just figure out what the best ways to go about doing that are and to attract new businesses because it's not obviously it's it's important for our province as a whole absolutely and you know we have to we have to look at as smaller communities especially not being so reliant reliant on on the forest industry but it it is prudent to say that it is a sustainable um business and so i don't want to see forestry dismissed which is why the, we're doing. We're having a rally on the 18th, and many coastal communities are going to be going there, and that's to bring attention um, for the need for a working forest being set aside in, in perpetuity. Uh, protected forests have tripled since 1991, and 55% of the 3.5 million hectares of old growth are protected under parks and reserves, and of the 2.8 million that are left over, 81% of the old growth will never be logged. And so there are a lot of protected areas. And when we hear that it's the last of the remaining old growth, that's simply not true. Yeah, definitely some, some lessons to be learned here, and um, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and, and taking the time to shed some light on just what your experience has been like over these last seven and a half months and, and the difficulty the community has faced and just sort of how resilient you guys have been and, and you know, you've been able to, to make your way through it. Anything else that you want to add here, Mayor Wickstrom, before I let you go, just to, to highlight just the, you know, the struggles you guys have had here over the last little while? 
Well, just to thank Minister Baines for, for getting more involved and, and the mediators, Amanda Rogers and Vince Reddy. Uh, I, I don't believe without that extra little bit of pressure they would have reached an agreement. And the fact that they did in the 10 days was the best possible outcome. Right on. Well, thank you so much, Mayor Wickstrom, for taking the time. I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about your experience. Uh, I think it's something that a lot of communities uh, could potentially be dealing with in the not-too-distant future when talking about the forestry industry specifically. So uh, thank you so much for shedding some light on that. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and I look forward to working with the Interior on this as well. Sounds good. Well, we'll keep in touch. That was the uh, Mayor of Vancouver Island Community of Port McNeil, Gabby Wickstrom, talking about that tentative deal for some 3,000 workers represented by the United Steelworkers uh, at Western Forest Products, which will hopefully bring an end to that strike that has lasted well close to eight months, seven and a half months now, uh, approaching that eight-month time frame. So uh, a long time to be off the job, and as uh, Mayor Wickstrom mentioned as well, um, the, the impact it had on those spin-off employment opportunities as well. So it's not just those direct workers at this uh, particular industry or this particular workplace, but those spinoff jobs as well that have had uh, a significant impact. Um, then seven and a half months off the job. I couldn't even imagine having to take that much time off work and, and not having, you know, a, a real steady income as a result. I mean, people need to support themselves and their families. And yet, despite that, um, you know, they were able to hold out for as long as they did. Definitely a tough situation to be in. And, and hopefully for the sake of the Port McNeil community, that deal does indeed get ratified. Uh, seven and a half months is just way too long to be unsure of what your future might look like, not only for uh, you know people in the community, but just being able to plan the community itself and how that is going to look moving forward. It's all difficult if no one has any income. Coming up next, the Kamloops Blazers are set to celebrate some of the greatest teams in their history next week. I'll be joined by the chair of the anniversary celebrations after this. A passionate advocate for Canadians, an unshakable desire for justice, and a deep love for his country. We'll be talking to you instead of at you. Roy Green is live on Radio NL, a three-time CAB National Gold Ribbon winner. Find out what you think is appropriate. No wonder Roy's show has been cited by Canada's parliamentary newspaper as required listening for federal politicians. How do you put those two together? You should listen to The Roy Green Show, weekend afternoons, noon to two on Radio NL, 610 AM. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show here on this lovely Tuesday. Thanks so much for tuning in. The Kamloops Blazers were a team to be reckoned with. Okay, well, I believe that that's actually still the case now, but even more so back in the mid to early 90s. The team won three Memorial Cup titles in a four-year span, winning the last one in 1995. I'm joined on the line now by the chair of the Kamloops Blazers Memorial Cup Anniversary Celebrations, Norm Daly. Norm, thanks so much for taking the time here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so you're you're set to present to council here today some of the uh, of what's coming up here next week to celebrate these Memorial Cup championships. Maybe if you can give us a little bit of a summary of kind of what's going to be going down here next week to celebrate these three Memorial Cup titles in a span of four years. Well, we're also celebrating uh, the other three uh, Western Hockey League championships we have. So we have uh, invited back six teams um, coming to this event. And so we're starting it off on uh, Friday the 21st with a, uh, a VIP experience with uh, Gord Banford and a meet and greet with, uh, with a number of the, well, all of the players and the coaches that are coming back. Um, that's followed up with a concert then at 8 o'clock on, uh, on the Friday night. And then moving into Saturday, we're uh, honoring uh, the veterans here in Kamloops. We're having a brunch 
brunch uh, with the with the Legion, the Anna vets, and any other vets uh, from 11 to 1, and that's really celebrating the history of the Memorial Cup, um, and uh, you know the fact that that's why it was awarded was because of the uh, what what occurred in, in World War One. Uh, we have an open event for the public on uh, Saturday afternoon, a public meet and greet from 3 to 5, and then obviously that night we're having a big presentation uh, prior to the game uh, with uh, with uh, showcasing all these six teams and their accomplishments over that span. So quite an action-packed couple of days here for, for people to cut out and enjoy and celebrate these uh, six championship teams that you were talking about. So uh, for, for those who are listening and sort of want to be able to, uh, you know, get, in, get to meet some of these alumni who are going to be in town, what sort of opportunities are there to, 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 to meet face-to-face with some of the players that are going to be coming in? You mentioned a, a couple of uh, things that are happening, but just what specific, um, you know, opportunities are there going to be for those sort of meet-and-greet opportunities? Yeah, well, definitely on the Saturday afternoon, it's a free event that's open to, to anyone to come down to uh, to the uh, Sandman Centre uh, from 3 to 5. Uh, we're going to have an area where the uh, Memorial Cup is set up, so we do have the uh, the uh, trophy that obviously they competed for in the building. Uh, people can get their picture taken with that. And we're going to have tables set up uh, throughout the concourse area where they can you know get up and close and personal with, with the various players, uh, which I think will be an awesome opportunity for the general public to, to come down and to uh, get a chance to meet with them. And then also on the uh, the Friday night, we do have a VIP experience, and there's still a, a couple of spots available for that. And they can, if somebody's interested in that, and that's really a sort of a one-on-one opportunity. Uh, we're having about uh, 350 people in total, which would be about uh, 80 alumni, um, you know, getting together on the floor of the uh, the Salmon Center before the concert. And if somebody wanted to be involved with that, they can still phone the Blazers office and and uh, and uh, and talk to them about that. Can you spill the beans at all about who is going to be here? Do you know sort of how many uh, of the alumni are going to be around uh, next weekend here in Kamloops and, and just what some of those uh, names are that people could look forward to seeing? Yeah, we've got about uh, 45 players and then another 10 managers and coaches and then also some uh, other uh, ancillary staff. And so we're at about 67 alumni from those teams. I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's the who's who of hockey, really. We have Ken Hitchcock, who's a legendary coach and from, from both the Western Hockey League and the NHL. I mean, Tom Rennie, he's uh, head of Hockey Canada, is, is coming, and he was the coach of the, the 92 team. Um, you know, we've got... Uh, Oh, it's a who's who. Shane Doan, um, Jerome McGinley, uh, Chris Murray, Mike Needham, Scott Niedermeyer, uh, Steve Passmore, Randy Petruk, you know, and just, the list just goes on and on. So I think uh, for anybody who's, uh, you know, was a fan of the Blazers, uh, we'll have an excellent opportunity to see uh, a lot of these old players coming back to town. Yeah, that's awesome. Even if you're, for whatever reason, I don't know why you wouldn't be a fan of the Blazers if you're living here in Kamloops, but uh, if you're just a hockey fan in general, those are some awesome names that are coming to town and, and and definitely a great opportunity to, to meet and, and, and visit and, and see some faces up close. So definitely going to be a, a pretty cool couple of days. Uh, just just can you speak to your experience in helping to plan this thing? I mean, like you had mentioned, I mean, all these who's who of hockey that you've probably had the chance to uh, get in touch with in some way, shape, or form as you're making this thing come uh, come to fruition. Um, I mean, has it just been a lot of fun for you to kind of, uh, you know, put this thing together and, and help organize? Yeah, it, it, it's really been interesting, and you know where it started from is is that uh, we. Uh when we made the Memorial Cup pitch a couple of years ago, or a year and a half ago, I guess, uh, we felt that we were honoring the 25th anniversary of the last Memorial Cup win. So out of that, 
we thought, well, Jeepers, in the 2020 season, we should do something to honor that team. And then we thought about it and said, well, what about the other five teams that went to the Memorial Cup? And, and that kind of came out that, the, the, like, last spring was the 35th anniversary of the first team that went. And so, you know, I talked to uh, Greg Eftashevsky, who's a good friend of mine, and, uh, you know, talked with the, the Blazer folks. And Greg was on that very first team. And, you know, it started to, started to roll and started to come up with ideas of what we could do. And, and um, you know, one of the common denominators back with those teams was the trainer, Spike Wallace. And really, Spike, who's a legend here in Kamloops, had a big part in this. I mean, he reached out to all of the players, uh, you know, got the information of where they are, what they're doing, you know, today, and uh, really, really helped the cause. And, you know, it has been fun, you know. Um, you know, just talking to a number of these players, the, you know, especially ones that are in towns, and, you know, sort of the excitement that built, you know, it's kind of like, well, are you going, are you going? And now, you know, I think we've got a really solid group of people coming back, and, you know, we're really excited about what the weekend uh, will bring. Awesome. It sounds like it's going to be a real fun event for a lot of people. Um, also wanted to ask you just sort of what your, your connection is, you know, dating back to those, uh, those Memorial Cup championships. I mean, I'm sure you were around and, and in Kamloops at the time. Just sort of can you speak to um, how the community was able to rally behind the team in those years and just how uh, significant it was for the community of Kamloops to have these championship teams or these teams going to the Memorial Cup and just how exciting it was for Kamloops as a whole? Well, it was unbelievable. I mean, you know, I uh, I moved here in, in 86 and sort of, you know, started getting in, into the uh, excitement and, you know, became a fan of the Camels Blazers as a, as a resident of the community. Um, my brother-in-law, Terry Bangan, is one of the returning alumni, was uh, was one of the assistant coaches on the team for a lot of those years and, well, for all three Memorial Cups. Um, and then, you know, we get into 1992 where uh, I went down to Seattle with a good friend of mine for the entire event, and uh, it was just an unbelievable experience. I mean, the the final in that building with, with so many Kamloops fans there chanting and, you know, wanting and saying, we want the cup. And, you know, it was just, I think there was more Kamloops fans there than, the, than anybody in the building. Uh, and then for, for the goal to be scored, you know, right at the end of the game, it was just a yeah, surreal experience. So it was, it was just amazing. You know, then, you know, fast forward to 1994 and uh, what they accomplished in Laval and then, you know, here in Kamloops, I mean, this, the sea of white in the building and the last game where we, you know, we win the 8-2 to two or whatever in the final and, you know, it just, it really put Kamloops on the map for hockey and so many of these players went on to, you know, amazing careers in the, in the NHL, you know, and the interesting part is there's a lot of these players that, that can't come back because they're still working, you know, they're, they're, they, they're like Ryan Huska and Tyson Nash, you know, they have jobs in, involved in hockey so you know it's just a, it was a, an amazing time and uh, you know that's what we want to to remember and, and hopefully we can start reliving that again now with the uh, the current Blazers. Yeah and I just wanted to get you out of here on this and just uh, ask about the current Blazers because um, you know they're they're having a pretty strong season at this point um, obviously leading the BC division as it stands right now just uh, how much cooler is it to have these celebrations take place uh, when the team is having success I mean it would have been a fun weekend either way even if they were you know somehow last in the WHL, but that's not the case, and uh, that's got to make it even a little bit cooler, the fact that this is a real competitive team. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, well, that was one of the reasons why we did go for that Memorial Cup bid, and, you know, we, we knew that this was going to be a strong team, and, uh, well, I didn't know, but the guys told me it would be, um, <laughs> because uh, that that's their job, and, you know, it is really neat. It's it's, it's very impressive as, as to what they've done and accomplished. I mean, um, they're a fairly young team overall, and, you know, I think that there's a lot of uh, good things to come, for, you know, for years, but, 
it's going to be good. There's going to be an opportunity for a little bit of interaction with the alumni and the current players, and I'm sure that these players uh, will will you know receive some excellent advice and, and uh, you know feel great about their chances moving forward. And you know we wish them all the best, and, and hopefully they are competing for the Memorial Cup again this year. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Thank you so much for taking the time, Norm. I really appreciate it, and uh, we'll look forward to next week. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, anytime. That was the uh, chair of the Kamloops 25th anniversary celebrations, uh, Norm Daly, talking about those, of course, those Blazer teams from uh, the early to mid-90s, 92, 94, 95 Memorial Cup championships, and, of course, uh, some other WHL titles uh, in there as well. So lots to celebrate here in the next uh, little bit. Uh, of course, the Blazers do have a couple of games here this weekend. They're set to take on the Red Deer Rebels on Friday and then take on the Victoriaville Royals. Victoria Royals on Saturday and Monday and then of course after that we can get set for those celebrations with Core Banford set to play a music festival there on Friday and then of more celebrations from those alum and those uh, big off course championship teams set to take place on the Saturday when the Blazers take on uh, the Calgary Hitmen at Sandman Center. Well that about wraps things up for me here today. I'd like to thank all my guests for joining me and of course a big thank you to all of you for listening and remember whether you join me for a short while or a long while just know I enjoyed her time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.